0: FaZe World Podcast helps independent creators live their creative and financial freedom. I'm your host, Fei Wu, and I'll be taking you through a series of interviews with creators from around the world who are living life on their own terms. Each episode is packed with tactics, nuggets you can implement, origin stories to make listening productive and enjoyable. We're not only focused on the more aspirational stories, but relatable ones as well. We also have non-interview-based miniseries releasing throughout the year to help deep dive into topics such as freelancing, marketing, even indie filmmaking that will benefit creators like you. Show notes, links, and ways to connect with the guests are available on phaseworld.com. Now onto the show. Hey, guys, this is Faye from Phase World Media. I am so glad and thrilled for this conversation with my friend, my colleague, my client, Michael Leckie. Uh, he did not push me to do this. I am so willing uh, to share this conversation uh, because, well, something important happened today on July 27th. First of all, uh, you know, Coldplay released their new single Um Colorotora, you don't care because more importantly, today something else is happening because Michael released uh, his book right here and it's not even hiding us right here on the 27th. Um, so, Michael, welcome to the show again.
1: Thank you so much, Faye, and thank you for making it all look much prettier. You always make me look better than I am, so you're magical.
0: Thank you. I just realized our background actually matches your shirt today. Good job.
1: It does. It's a little wrinkly, and uh, I did as everybody knows, If, if you can look barely behind me, you'll see all the stuff that was shoved on the floor <laughs> right before we started. Um, as as Faye knows well, I recently moved from the east coast to the west coast, and we are still settling in, moving things around, and trying to get life organized. So you know, a uh, little little real life background here, and no uh, no no fun uh, fun green screen today.
0: Yeah, well, this is real. I actually love it. The fact that. <laughs> I love going live with you because you, you've always been so real. I mean, since our first conversation, I believe back in September, October 2019. And uh, so much has happened to you. To summarize, in the past really less than two years, you have gone from a corporate executive to an entrepreneur. And, you know, starting your business is not trivial. And in those two years, you worked very hard, I, I know it at least, for you know, the first year writing the book, which will talk about the process, and you moved across the country. Um, for people who don't know you as well as I know you, I, will, I want to briefly introduce you, but I don't typically like to read the bio. But for people who want to learn more about Michael, his website is right in the signature, also in the description. No matter where you are right now, Michael is the is the former chief learning officer for digital industrial transformation at GE and is currently consulting on organization transformation and change to companies around the globe. He was also the chief learning officer and global head of organization and talent development at Bloomberg and managing vice president at Gartner executive program business, uh, managing teams that provide executive coaching, strategic guidance and research-based advisory services to Gartner C-suite clients. So You've done a lot, Michael, and then now you're writing the book. Um, so could you tell us a bit about, you know, why you wrote this book, chose this topic and who it's for?
1: Yeah, I absolutely can. And and thank you. Um, and, and by the way, those of you watching, yes, we all put our best little bits in the credits, but I also do really dumb things too. Um, so uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the book, it, it's it's a really interesting question. In fact, people will see in the dedication. Um that the book is actually for the people who are managed. Um, it, it's it's written specifically for managers and leaders, as well as anybody in an organization that um, is dealing with or driving or subject to um, you know change and transformation. Which at, at this point is just about everyone. So it's got a fairly wide audience. But when I wrote it, I specifically wrote it with um, the the lead and the leader both in mind, and with leaders especially trying to help them remember what a privilege it is to get to be in a position of leadership and how you need to earn that. And I I, I consider it kind of a a sacred trust. Um, You know, I had the great, good fortune at Gartner of having something happen in my career, which was life-changing in a career. And that was, I managed a group of uh, women and men who probably in eight out of 10 cases I would have reported to in different companies. They were all very senior, very smart, very accomplished, you know, ex CIOs and the like. And I got to really be in that position of of humility to figure out how do you add value to them as a leader? And now I think that we forget sometimes the leadership is about taking care of, guiding, coaching, adding value to and providing a space for people to be successful in the role that they're in. And um, so that's who the book is really written for is the lead, but also the leader so that they can really understand how do you effectively lead, especially through change and transformation, which is so poor, poorly done, quite frankly, and so inhuman in many times. Um, how do we bring the humanity back to that, which is, ironically, what it needs to actually be effective and to make change or transformation happen?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I have worked in business uh, business consulting, advertising for Mm -hmm. over a decade, as we talked about, and definitely witnessed a lot of issues. And what I love about your book is, you know, you connect sort of the neuroscience uh, uh, the science side of things, but also you operationalize and help under, help people understand how to actually do it. So could you talk a bit about the structure of the book, since not everybody necessarily have the book in hand just yet, but they should. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the structure.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, one of the use, uh, words used there, um, uh, you know, useful, um, uh, you know, things being practical and operationalized, I really want it to be useful. Uh, and there's a, a, a quote in there attributed to George Box, which says all models are wrong, but some are useful. And, you know, a, a model is simply a way we can look at the world to help us organize our thinking or our views to get something done. Otherwise, things can seem, you know, pretty chaotic. Models aren't the truth. They're just a map that help us. But if they can help us move forward and make progress, then they're useful. So that's what I've tried to do. So I would say I mean, the book is organized. um Really, the heart of it is talking about six different um, capabilities that I believe are critical to a, a digital age and to an age where change and transformation is ubiquitous. Uh, things like exploring uh, before executing, or humanizing before organizing, pathfinding before path following, uh, learning before knowing. Uh, you know, these are things that are concepts that are not new and original to me. I didn't invent them, and maybe they've been said in a better way before. But what I tried to do after I explained the concept and shared some stories of how it shows up and really leads to, you know, great success and great forward momentum, is then said, okay, so how, how do you operationalize these things? Because all my career since I've been working in the field of of change and culture, people have said, and you know, change the manage the change and 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 change the culture. And it reminded me. I think I've told you this story before. It reminded me of um, the only time, unfortunately, that I ever went. Uh, scuba diving and I was on Turks and Caicos and we're out in a little resort thing and it was was really cool and got out in the boat and we were taught what to do and we go down in the water and I was having this hard time you know keeping a level Uh, I kept floating up floating down I'm adjusting things and finally, I see the dive instructor give me the thumbs up and she looks kind of irritated we get up she goes you have to stay level Mm -hmm. I'm like what do I do she goes stay level which I mean it was the most useless advice I'd ever gotten especially with her anger there and I was all frustrated and humiliated that I couldn't do it and but that's kind of what we do to people you know stay level change it, they don't know how to do that so the book then moves into how do you operationalize that and the way that i operationalize it is through questions the the simple act of asking questions good questions of yourself and of others and then learning from what happens and we'll talk a little bit more about that learning from the answers learning from the asking itself learning from how the conversation flows is is in itself a change in behavior so my my belief is that Beliefs never change behaviors. Um, uh, behaviors change beliefs. Sorry, the other way around. People start with beliefs, and they want to say, "Hey, here's the new beliefs to change behaviors." But those beliefs won't go in place and change your behavior. You have to start with the behaviors to actually put the beliefs in place. So, questions are the behaviors that can actually change your beliefs.
0: Hmm. You ask some really great questions. Like, I'm gonna pop up and, you know, we start working on things like this, you know, um, yeah. the phrase canvas, which uh, allow people, allow leaders or creators to actually, you know, for instance, print it out or project it on the screen or put it on their smartphones and to actually go through the questions. When you first introduced it to me, at the beginning, I was thinking, okay, the structure is quite simple. You know, like uh, I've asked myself the questions at least once before, but I love your belief, which you've taught me in the past two years, is that, you know, innovation and change in itself, it's not a destination. It's actually a process. And that is something I really appreciate. But I do want you to maybe dive in a little bit about the four A's canvas and, and tell us how you structure uh, these questions and why.
1: Yeah. Would well, you want to pull it up again there, second thing? Sure. Let's do it. So you can see the four A's are simply allow, ask, <clears throat> ask, and ask again, and then assess and then again, so there's, there's more A's in there, but it's the allow, the ask, the uh, assess, and again, there are the four that we talk about. So um, I used a canvas, and you can pull it down if you want to, but I use a canvas. Um, I was taught this when I first started working in digital circles, like using the lean canvas and different types of canvases and Kanban boards and things to track what I was doing. And I find that the simpler the tool, The easier it is to use i know that may sound kind of you know facile on the surface but it is and so a tool like this is simply to say look when you're asking a question there's more than just the asking of the question you have to start with first of all well is it possible that this question is valuable to ask because some of the ones in the book are not the questions you would normally ask and so people might look at them and say well What's your third best idea? Why, why, why would I want to ask that? So the first thing we do is we talk about why might you want to ask that question? Why is it good to get to the third best idea and have people work through multiple ideas? Because you're more creative, you're more innovative, you push past the answers that are easiest or the answers you think they want to hear. And when people run out of room with the easy answers, the answers they think you want to hear, they'll actually start to dig into something because they have nothing else to say. And, and so it's a really powerful, but simple tool. Um, and thinking about how you're going to ask the question, what is the attitude or, or the uh, assumptions or even the tenor of the question? Because uh, we've all been asked questions that aren't questions. Um, you know, the, the best example I think I can think of is, what are you thinking? <laughs> so what are you thinking like that isn't a question, it's a statement. It says, you're not thinking, you're kind of an idiot. It's an insult. It's a judgment as opposed to, well, what are you thinking? What do you think about this? That's an invitation. It's an invitation to engage in a conversation. Same words, but entirely different. And yet I know a lot of people and a lot of people in leadership roles who will say, well, I asked them. It's like, does anybody else have a better idea? (laughs) (laughs) Which is simply saying, no one does, and if you think you do, please bring it forward so you can be humiliated and punished in front of the rest of the group. So we have to learn to really bring the right tone and the tenor to those. Then we have to stop and say, well, what did I learn? And it's not just what did I learn from the answers I received – is what did I learn from the answers I didn't receive, from what people said, from how I reacted to it, to how it made me feel, to what kind of dialogue it led to, to did conversation stop, did conversation expand? There's so many things you can learn about how you interact with other human beings. And then you get to the end of that and you say, okay, what did I learn about them? What did I learn about me? And also, maybe what did I learn about the question? But honestly, the question initially its answer is secondary to what did I learn about them and what did I learn about me and how we work together? Because as that improves, then the answers and the the content of the answers come quicker, come more easier. They're easier to get to the truth or what really matters. It's easier to get the confrontation out. It's easier to point out where we're in disagreement, where we want to avoid that. It all becomes much more powerful. So starting with a really simple tool like the canvas allows you to walk through it But there's a lot of learning and a lot of time that can take place in that canvas. And as you continue to go back to it as something to orient around, it gets easier. It gives you a pattern. It gives you a model in your mind for how you go about using questions. So then Mm -hmm. you can move past the 30, 31 questions, I think, in the book and ask other questions as they show up. And you'll learn about what makes a good question and what makes a bad question and really understand the true power of what questions can unlock both in answers, but in relationships and ways of working and, and innovating.
0: Awesome. And I wanna remind people who are watching this right now, um, do ask questions and we won't judge based on good versus bad questions. And guess what? If you ask questions throughout this interview, after we conclude the live, Michael and I are going to select the winner of a uh, someone winning a book and it's gonna be a signed copy We'll ship it to you if you're based in the U.S. And with that said, I also want to mention that on Michael's website, you know, uh, there are a lot of tools. So There are courses, um, there are uh, emails you can get uh, in a sequence, and you can learn really truly a lot more about his work even before you get to his book. But I do think uh, the book, in a way, to me, I was surprised that it's a fairly easy read because, Michael, you decided to incorporate you know, not just the science, but also your personal experience. And I don't think you're trying to take yourself too seriously here and uh, and trying to be really authentic and real. Was that, was that style your choice, kind of what you're comfortable writing?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, in the beginning, um, my excellent uh, editor, uh, Kathy Sweeney, when I first started writing it, I was very concerned about extensive research, documentation, and almost making it just... Um, you know, a, a real uh, you know compendium of, of other truth and bringing it together. And I was worried about just saying what I think and feel without a bunch of evidence behind it. I had some. I think I had enough, but I wanted more and more. And what she said to me, she goes, "You know, it's a book for people to read, and 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 people want to hear what you have to say, and they'll decide for themselves if that's true or useful or not. But but tell them what you have to say." And I realized that one of the things that I've been told in the past that could make the work I do more, has made it more you know um, in, impactful, mm-hmm. is that I tend to be very honest, open, and self-disclose. And I guess it's sort of something I stumbled upon. I don't know that it was a plan, but I, I, I've started to realize, and of course more great research has been done about this, the power of your own humility and vulnerability. Look at Ed, Ed Hess and Catherine's Ludwig's work around humility is the new smart or any of Brene Brown's stuff on, you know, vulnerability. And, and these are powerful tools we have, and they also make us feel so much better. And so what I tried to do is set a, I guess, a conversational tone in the book that I would hope that people could get into, because I find that real conversations are what really matter. I mean, I, I work with clients, you know, all across the spectrum in my career, but I've worked with C-suite leaders of, you know, I don't know, probably most of the Fortune 500 at some point in my life, you know, with Gartner and somebody that that I've met when I was there, and then since then in other work. And it's the conversations we have where we're real, where they get the most value, because leaders find themselves in this unenviable, unenviable position of being that the higher they go in an organization and the bigger the organization, the harder it is to get people to tell them the truth. And they're actually really starving for it. They want that feedback. They want that reality conversation. But the only way I can engage in that is if I don't come in as a superior person. Um, I'm, I'm very fallible. I make mistakes, and I'm always learning and growing. And and we've talked about this, and, and in fact, you've helped me with something recently but I'm, I'm doing two new things in my life uh, at this point to continue to put myself in a place of humility and learning. One of them is, since I, have, I stopped taking lessons when I was a little kid, I'm learning to play the piano again. And yesterday I was practicing my scales and, you know, fumbling through them. And in fact, we've been uh, uh, recording those sessions with the wonderful Cosmo Buono as we've done it to just say, look, here's somebody who... You can look at it and say, well, you know, oh, Michael's got, you know, a book out and he's all these, you know, big names endorsing him. And he's worked for these big corporations and spoken in front of, you know, thousands of people and works with senior executives and blah, blah, blah. Wee ha. How exciting. But at the end of the day, I'm also just a person fumbling through trying to play, you know, lullaby or ode to joy or, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star as I learn something new in the same vein, I'm about to start taking flying lessons. And it, uh, it's it's different, it's it's anxiety provoking, it's scary up there, you're bouncing around in that little plane, but at the same time, it's something I want to learn to do. And so I'm putting myself in that place of being a little more childlike and learning. Mm-hmm. That's an opportunity we don't get in corporations anymore. We're mm-hmm. not allowed to be childlike. We're not allowed to play. We're not allowed to learn near as much as we should, at least in most of them. And so I'm hoping to bring a, a humanity um, a, a learning, a, a playfulness, and really an openness to how can we all grow together? Because uh, I'll, I'll stop rattling on here, but the, the bottom line is that we are in a world now where we can't know everything we need to know. It can't be what we know that makes us who we are. Um, you know, we we can't be ahead of everyone. We can't be the best. There's too many things to know. The problems we're trying to solve are con- too complex. The solutions are too complex. All we can do is be really great learners and make our way through what's coming as opposed to being know-it-alls. And that know-it-all to learn-it-all switch, that takes humility, that takes failure, that takes vulnerability, that takes play, that takes being a bit childlike, things which scare us and we haven't rewarded in the past in organizations. And I'd, I'd like to see that change, um, you know, as many organizations as I could help it change in. One of the reasons I wrote the book is to try and get that out there to more places than just my clients.
0: Um, this is so lovely said, because it reminds me as I started listening to the audiobook by Simon Sinek as well, The Infinite Game. And it's very much the same mindset that instead of competition, we have to be at the top. He used the example of Microsoft and Apple a lot. But if we can be learners first and, you know, and, and think about long term gains as hard as it can be, uh, as there are there are some benefits to be short term thinkers. But in the long run. Uh, you, you won't you won't win and um, I I want to really use myself as a guinea pig here because uh, I really bought into uh, the four A's and and then as a creative entrepreneur as you know as people know on my channel I haven't worked in corporate for more than I think almost seven six seven years at this point I don't see myself going back yet I actually gained a lot of knowledge from this book I'm reading. And it's a it's a type of book I want to hold on to. It's not a temporary read. It's not something I feel like uh, I will learn once and I'm all set. So, uh, So here's the context. I think the context really helps. A lot of entrepreneurs in our position really struggles with one thing, which is to understand how to actually scale their business. And I want mm. to be completely honest, um, right? As for myself, there are a lot of excuses, not asking for help. And Mm. um, so I'm really focusing on change as the capability that I had to admit that it's also difficult for me as much as, you know, my friends, family and colleagues think I'm, you know, I'm this growth mindset thinker and uh, I am um, not afraid to say that I'm wrong yet to actually make change happen. It's challenging, Uh, Since I started my business in in 2016, I slowly uh, began to hire people. Now I have three people on the team. But then because of your book and working with you, I had to re-examine. Instead of being, oh, I'm really proud. Everybody has something to do. Now it's like there's more things on my list now than there there were, you know, even a few years ago. I need to offload even more and let go control. And I was so uncomfortable. So I really want to use... you know uh, this four A's canvas and and the, the change uh, section, the change capability for for you and I to explore. Maybe you can ask me questions. I don't know how you think it works best, but shall we give it a shot?
1: <laughs> uh, sure. So you want to talk about you know how to how to kind of move forward and ask for more help?
0: Yeah, asking for more help either yeah. finding new pe- new people or or for in my case, I slowly and surely to give away offload more tasks to my very capable small team. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's, it's, it's a great, it's a great discussion because, you know, uh, for whatever reason, again, like Brene's work has discussed so much this, you know, being vulnerable and asking for help. But, you know, when you think about asking for help, what is it that holds you back? What 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 is the what is the concern or the 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 fear that holds you back? Do you think from always asking for help right away?
0: Yeah, I think some of the fear uh, that comes to mind right away is you know what if my. Clients will will leave right. Right now, let's say I have the stability of having five, six clients, but they're different sizes and different type of retainers. I also have revenue from, let's say, uh, YouTube advertising and partnering with different companies. But there's always part of me is thinking like these things kind of in flux, right? If I commit to paying uh, my resource, uh, my amazing people, a certain amount of money, I feel like. I, I want to do right by them. And, and what if yeah. my client base changes? And it's just like, you know, um, what if something yeah. happens? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's like that, There, there's that that fear of if I, if, so in this case, if I engage and bring others into, you know, my little world, that now they have me as a, a source of revenue, will I be able to stay, sustain that and take care of them? So that, that fear of, I won't succeed and I'll let people down, it's mm-hmm. like- I better not try because once I get there, I might not stay there. Right. It's right. an interesting way of thinking, right? Because we all do that. And yet, what is the what is the logical outcome of that? I'll just never get anywhere right. because I might end up back there if I try to get out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all you're doing is guaranteeing you won't go anywhere, but still it's that 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 fear that we have of looking less than, of looking inadequate, of looking imperfect, of looking like our knowledge is not there, like we don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the secret. Uh, we are imperfect. We don't know everything. Our knowledge is inadequate. And there's no way around that anymore. And so really just embracing the the truth of the world. It's one of the reasons I'm doing the piano lessons is because I can't do that without help. I can't do that I tried. I had the piano. I got the keyboard a year ago. I tried doing some different things. It was kind of fun. I'd learn a little bit. Hey, I learned to play, you know, the opening part to Van Halen Jump. Then I couldn't do the whole thing. I had to give up, you know, and uh, but with, you know, Cosmo correcting me and showing me what I do wrong and where my mistakes are, I can start to fix them because if you think about it, nothing ever gets accomplished. You never succeed at anything until you fail at it first. I mean, anything you've succeeded at, you've failed at. And the more you've failed at it, the better your chances are of succeeding at it. But nonetheless, in a, in a world where we always are trying to look our best, and now it's all about your brand and your presence, I mean, you know this. Now Now, as, a, as an entrepreneur, do I need to get out there and say, everyone, by the way, I am Michael Lecky, and I am the absolute best at this by my stuff? Well, first of all, people aren't actually going to believe that. And when they see that I'm just another human being – but I've gotten somewhere through failing and making mistakes, they're like, okay, maybe that's okay for me too. Then you take that lesson back to our corporations. You're a senior leader and you've got a group of people and you are trying to get them to change and innovate and grow and you're exhorting them to do this. But when they look at you, they see someone who puts on this mask of infallibility and you don't show your weaknesses and you don't show your soft underbelly they get the message that it's not safe to do that around here. It's not safe to not be right. It's not safe to fail. So we have to actually, you know, to use the old metaphor, practice what we preach or no one's going to believe it, which is one of the reasons in the book when I'm talking to leaders, I say, look, you need to go first, you know, for two reasons. One, so you have the empathy for what they're going through as they change. And two, so you bring in that now much vaunted psychological safety that it's okay to not know. It's okay to learn. It's okay to unlearn. It's okay to change and try things you've never done before. And no one's going to believe that because you say it to them. They're mm-hmm. only going to believe that when you show it to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. And I realized like, as I'm setting up the context, um, you have also provided in your toolkit a list of questions. So, you know, even though part one right now says, allow, why would this be a good question? Just as a hint, you know, here are the list of questions related to um this is exploring before executing so there's a list of right. questions for each and every one of the capabilities and uh i think you know for me when it, as it relates to change it's what's the what's the cost of not changing what's the cost of staying the same and uh that becomes really obvious that i won't be able to grow my business uh there's no balance to my work life balance and yeah. i am unable to learn from people who are clearly better uh, at this than I do. And on top of that, humanizing things make me realize, as you are talking about, even if things go south and they don't work out, if half of my clients leave me for whatever reason, um, I am able to have that conversation with my content manager, with my producer. In fact, they initiated uh, not to ever under underestimate the people you work with. They actually approached me first. I remember last year as I was buying a house and they came to me, even offer me discounts and offer to you know, help me out between then, which was September, closing the house through end of the year, I was blown away, you know, like we ended up getting more done, not less. So, um, shall we, let's see, that's, that's the first question and I want to go through the list. So there is two right here. Um, mm-hmm. and so, if the question, let's say the cost of not changing we're staying the same, mm-hmm. and here we have on screen is how do I have to uh ask this question what what do I want to assume is possible or what, what tone do I choose to use I think the tone part is so important. So what Yeah. Are, hmm.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean we, we started with so so go back request to, to to number 1. Um sure. it's the um allow, right? Uh, sorry yeah. the allow part. Yeah, allow. So why might this be a useful question to ask? Cuz I realize I kind of took off track from where you wanted me to go there. So we start with this is why might it be a useful question to ask. And so one you were using there, I think the version I used in the book is uh, one one of those is what's the cost of replicating our success. Mm, okay. So we'll take that for an example and kind of walk through here. Why might this be a useful question to ask? Well, you might think, well, I don't. I don't think there is a reason to ask that because, I mean, if we've got something successful and working, we want to replicate and scale that and just go and make money and succeed and grow. But if you think about it further, why might it be useful? Well, it might be useful if there actually is a cost to doing that because most of the time we don't think there is a cost to just replicating and scaling what works and what we're successful and good at. But if there's a hidden cost. Might it be useful to know that because might that not be something that trips us up, derails us, or catches us out later on? So if you move to the second question then that you um, that are in the four A's, um, mm-hmm. which is ask, how do I ask the question? So this is a question you have to um, assume that possibility is there, and then you have to be real sincere. Because let's say you're a, uh, you're a manager now, and Faye, you've got your team there, and you want to ask that question, what's the cost of replicating our success? Your team has to know that you're not probing them for their weakness to see if they don't believe in the mission or something, that you're actually asking a real honest question that you don't know the answer to, that you need their help. So you're engaging them now as as equals in a conversation, and you're taking the the hierarchy of the organization out of it, which can get in the way. So it's like, well, what, what is the possible cost of replicating our success And people start to think about that. And one of the things that often comes up when I use this question in my consulting work is, well, then that's the only success we're really going to have. Maybe there's an even more powerful, more successful success out there. The other one that's come up a lot is, and again, there are other answers to this question, but the other one that's come up a lot is, will we stop learning and innovating because we're just replicating success? And what we know from looking at the history of organizations and products and services and businesses is that everything is successful point in time and the time changes and the context changes. So if you're, you know, we'll take one of the overused examples, but if you're Netflix shipping out DVDs right from close distribution centers to your door, not having, you know, late fees, like you had at blockbuster Um, You know, having it keep them as long as you want, buying it when you want it. That was a great, successful approach to business. Mm -hmm. And yet they were smart enough to see that it wasn't going to be the only success because streaming was going to go from something that, uh, you know, was like that to something like this that actually worked and there'd be a new way of being successful. And so that reinventing of themselves kept them successful. And we can look at so many other companies that said, no, we're just going to do what makes sense and what we've been successful at, our core competency, and not worry about the small stuff out there. Because they're right. That new thing was small mm-hmm. until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And then they were, they were left behind. So the ask. And then the, the third part of the, the canvas, the third mm-hmm. question there is the ask and ask again. That's, okay, do I need to ask this question again? Have we gotten the answers out? Do we need to go back and revisit it and say, okay, as my friend Michael Bungay-Stanier would say, and what else? You know, Do we need to go back and probe further? And oftentimes, we ask the first time, and we get one answer or two answers, and we think about it, and we go back and we ask again and say, let's go a little bit deeper in this, and we get to even better answers. Now, we don't always have to do that, but sometimes upon reflection, we'll find that we need to. And then the fourth part of the canvas um, is really simple. That's the assess part. What surprised me? What did I hear? How did it line up with my expectations or assumptions? So when I, I think about what I heard uh, or what I want to do with it, so in this case of the what's the cost of replicating our success, I might say, well, if we just replicate success, then we might lose the ability to innovate and change and find new ones, or we might lose our learning you know, capacity. Now, the answer to that Possibility is not great. Let's stop scaling and replicating what we know how to do, and just go off on a bunch of moonshots. I mean, if you're Google, you've literally got a company called Right X that does moonshots. That's what they do. But you don't all, all only have that. If you're part of Alphabet, there, you've got Google which scales and replicates things like maps and search, which are their bread and butter, which they're just improving. And you've got ventures, which is trying to find some new things that are good bets. And you've got X, which is saying, and here's the wild stuff that may never yield a result. And we expect maybe one in a hundred of these to actually be good. But that one could be game changing. You play all those fronts and you distribute your resources accordingly. You can do that if you're Google. And you can do that if you're uh, phaseworld.com as well. You can say, here's the stuff I'm going to do and redo that's good. Here's the stuff that I'm going to try out and partner with some people on. And here's that one or two things that may be completely off brand that could be crazy good for me. I mean, I still think back on my most popular and well uh, and highest read uh, LinkedIn post um, had something to do with an experience I had. With Delta Airlines. Now, I am not an airline critic or an airline reviewer, but I had this post and I, I can't even honestly remember the essence of it now. But it got like 20, 25,000 views and comments because it struck a chord. But it was outside my area of expertise and focus. I just asked the question and played around with it a little bit there. So you never can tell what off brand thing might become your new brand.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of learnings as you're walking through an example uh, at a bigger scale, but I think about on my own uh, at my level, which I know there are a lot of creative entrepreneurs, especially since before the pandemic and throughout the pandemic are exploring new career paths and uh, mm-hmm. it's fascinating to me to realize that um true when I think about replicating success for me, you know I've launched my youtube channel, I've grown it to about sixteen thousand. Subscribers, which, which I never imagined. Now I have to really make a decision because on one hand I could say that was my success, and and but I am unable to replicate myself so that. I should continue to run my channel uh, specifically you know research my title type in the keywords prepare descriptions and all these things because I know from an algorithm perspective I have really owned this um, but it's not true uh, you know I'm able to train someone else and when I work with Anna when I work with Herman uh, and Rose on my projects I realize they bring in whole new perspectives and, and Anna designed the thumbnails that have higher click-through rates and and if it doesn't frankly, and she and i have a meeting right after this and we'll look at we'll look at the stats and we'll figure out what works um so that's absolutely true another question i like when you ask what is the worst that could happen so yeah. in a you know what's the worst could happen yeah lower lower view lower click through rate and it, it doesn't like it, it once you put things on paper you realize it's not nearly as horrific or or scary as you thought so to go through that question you realize that um, what what's blocking us can actually be, frankly, a little little silly, and um, that yeah. we can actually get past that much much more um, quickly than I we thought. So,
1: well, and we we make these assumptions about for others. Let's let's talk about um, you know uh, me working with you or you working with uh, Rose and Anna and others. Yeah. Is that we have this oh well this obligation if I start now then what what happens to them. Um, Mm -hmm. if, if for some reason I I can't work with him anymore one day, well, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, I mean, we've been working together for a couple of years Mm -hmm. and I I pay you a regular monthly retainer for the work that you do. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's great business for you. But yet if Michael Leckie disappeared tomorrow, it wouldn't devastate your world. You'd miss me, but (laughs) it wouldn't devastate your world financially. And you, you'd move on and you'd figure something else out. And you've probably done things like I have to prepare and to kind of, you know, spread your business out a little bit. Well, you know, uh, Rose has and Anna have as well as they're building it. And, you know, there's these points in times where it's easier or harder and that's what happens. But when you talk about what's the worst that could happen here, you know, the worst that could happen if I engage you is that it doesn't work out and someday we're not working together. Mm-hmm. Of course, if I don't engage you, it never works out and we never work together. So, right. you know, I mean, we're actually making that worst case scenario come true if we don't try it. Okay. Also with others, I say, what's the worst that can happen? You know, sometimes the worst that can happen is pretty big. I've seen companies say, well, what's what's the worst that can happen if we do this? Like, you know, we could tank the whole business. Okay, then you know what? Maybe that's not the best solution. Maybe there's an easier way to find out what we need to find out. Try it we want to try. Innovate where we want to Innovate. That won't destroy the whole business. Um, there's great work on the book Immunity to Change by Bob Keegan and Lisa laskow lehi which is a phenomenal, a phenomenal book talking about how people, you know, um, you know are, are immune to change and, and avoid change. And um, I, I love the fact that they talk about small recoverable tests. And so you can do small recoverable tests of what might happen. You don't have to bet the farm on everything. And you know what you you really don't. Um, uh, you know the these relationships that we're starting to form, especially as entrepreneurs, you have a number of people, and you know there's a it's like a community, this web of you know of of services and and, and goods and payment going back and forth. But it, it becomes more sustaining like that as you go forward and there's more elements. It's not just you and them. You're not solely dependent, mm-hmm. which is sometimes, I think, why in organizations we don't take chances because we've put ourselves into in, a place, uh, especially, and I don't want to get overly political in the United States, mm-hmm. where you are so dependent on an employer for your status, your health benefits, um, you know, all of your income, all of these things that w- Corporations that we design tend to make, make make people more and more conservative and take less and less chances on things because of the high risk. Mm-hmm. Whereas corporations that allow for a little more, uh, you know, freedom and places where you're not as dependent, um, you will take more risk and you will do different things and you'll actually be able to contribute more. So. You know, it's Mm -hmm. funny, oftentimes we have these organizations and corporations that are perfectly designed to stop us from doing all the things that we actually want to do, but we don't reflect upon that because we don't reflect upon the fact that most of these structures were created in, you know, uh, the Frederick Taylor days of industrialism, and we don't realize that most of the things that govern them were created to mitigate risk regardless of the cost. Mm -hmm. And there can be a huge cost sometimes to mitigating risk.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of mitigating risks and and to realize them. Uh, One question that has come up a lot, by the way, on your social media and through conversation is the fact that, you know, you personally, you came from corporate America, you were, you know, managing director level, you are high up and there's a lot more at stake as you climb the corporate ladder. You know, um, so for us, you know, our our base salary from when we left corporate is very different. For me, I was thinking, you know, I think I can replicate this, you know, at some point or it takes some time. But for you, uh, a couple of years ago or a few years ago, as you're contemplating this, that was uh probably a pretty big risk i mean i don't know what was your mindset like if you were to if we were to flip the script you know what was change like what was pathfinding innovation like for you to start your business you know as opposed to yeah. just keep going keep doing what you were doing
1: yeah it's a great question um you know cuz i tried it before um i tried it once i actually tried it a long time ago and i was so green and not ready for it and then years went by and I kind of started down that road again. Um, and what happened is I was like, you know what? I'm going to, maybe I'll do my own thing here because I've always wanted to, but I'm going to still look at jobs as they come up. What I was basically saying to myself was, I'm going to keep, I'm going to move on trying to do something on my own, but I'm kind of too scared to commit to it. So I'm going to keep my foot in for for other jobs. And, you know, at one point I ended up getting into something that there were some warning signs, but there was also so many things that looked like this is great. Then I said, yeah, I'm going to go back into this. And those things that I'm worried about, they're they're not going to be there. And they weren't for a period of time. And then they were. And I've seen that experience replicated again and again by people I worked with. So when I got to the point of actually doing this, um, <laughs> what I said to less to myself, but more even to my wife was, I don't know how we're going to pay the bills. I don't know how we're going to pay the mortgage. I don't know how we're going to make this work and if we're going to make near as much money if we're going to have to adjust our lifestyle move somewhere less expensive i don't know um i just know that this is kind of what i have to do and where i want to go and it scares the hell out of me but are you okay to go with me on that journey and you know fortunately i have a a a phenomenal uh woman molly that i'm married to and she agreed but To answer your question, I had to commit. I had to say I'm going to do it. Um, The metaphor I've often uh, used—it's kind of a silly one—but it's sort of like if I'm afraid to jump in the water, you know, sometimes the best thing for me to do is to tie a rope around my ankle and the other end around a rock and throw the rock in, because eventually that rope's going to go tight and I'm going to get yanked in with it. And so I'll do things. I'll I'll commit to something. I'll commit to a deadline. I'll, I'll commit to something happening, knowing that then. I'm probably going to rise to the challenge and get it done, even if I don't know how to do it. And so I I think for me, that's what I had to do. I had to say, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but it's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a choice to do this, and then I'm going to figure it out. I think if you wait to figure it out before you make the choice to do it, there's no incentive. There's no need. There's nothing that's pushing you. You can get lazy. You can settle back into a comfortable rut that maybe you're not so happy with what you're doing, but hey, it's the devil, you know, as opposed to getting out there and risking it all. And you know what? I, I could be in a much different position. I, I could be doing you know far less well than I am. Mm-hmm. but I'm not, you know, and, and I, I can't I, I can't worry about that. I just have to kind of go forward and do. And also, quite frankly, you know, while I've done, you know, very well, in fact, I've, I've done better financially as an entrepreneur than I did even in the big corporate roles, but that's not guaranteed. Of mm-hmm. course, corporate roles not guaranteed. They're giving you the illusion to control. You can be, you know, let go any day for whatever reason, when your manager changes, there's an acquisition or the strategy changes or, you know, whatever happens. So I've just kind of em- embraced more of that unknowing mm-hmm. and realized that really that's, that's the reality of our world. And we spend all this time constructing false structures of security that tell us it's all going to be all right. Who knows if it's all going to be all right? I mean, the pandemic taught us that. And look at the amount of people now that having learned that lesson in the pandemic, that anything can happen, people are leaving their jobs in unbelievably record numbers. I think one of the studies I saw said 95% of people they surveyed are considering changing jobs or changing careers, 95%, yeah, because they've realized that the world is not a set, stable place where tomorrow is the same as today. Yeah. That's scary, but it's incredibly freeing at the same time once you go ahead and accept that reality.
0: Yeah, Uh this part is so helpful. And, and I know, you know, this is a segment I want to slice and dice and share, share it again and again. Um, But uh, is it possible, Michael, to break down your transition? Because I know that one advice I give to people is like, now today you have an idea, maybe don't, you know, <laughs> don't try to screw up your job tomorrow, try to leave your job. Uh that, Don't burn bridges. But Um, now knowing your clients absolutely adore you, you still travel a bit here and there, there's still a lot of freedom on your schedule. Could you help people understand how to go from like ideation where from going from passion to action, but actually build out a plan? Did you reach out to your, your clients, people that, um, you know, build out relationships ahead of time and then kind of smoothly transition into projects. If you remember what that was like?
1: Yeah. You know, well, I mean, um, the first time I did. I did more of that. Um, I, you know, thought about what is it I'm good at? I've been building. What have I been doing? Where's its application elsewhere? How can I reach out make some connection? Um, And I was always, you know, uh, somebody, um, I'm blanking on his name. He'll never forgive me. Uh, Joe, I can't think of your last name. Wonderful guy. And he told me years ago, he goes, he goes, you're in a great spot right now where you got a great job with a great company like Gartner. You don't need to worry about going anywhere else. So now is the perfect time to be focusing on building your network and yeah. build it from a perspective of what can you give and contribute to people out there that need help that aren't in the position you are. Because when you find yourself or decide to be in that position, you'll want that network to be there as well. Um, and I really took to heart, I think, Adam Grant's uh, work, you know, um, um, you know, meeting Adam, getting to do some work with him around when he wrote Give and Take. It's like, how can you give? How can you connect people? Um, And so I've always tried to be and when I was in a position to do so. I was generous with my time. Um, I tried to help people as much as I could, regardless of any kind of return I would get for it, because it felt like that was the right thing to do in the world. Of course, as a result, when I've needed people, they've been there for me, they've shown up. And so when I Made kind of the the second time I decided to do this, I made it kind of abrupt. I was like, I just got to go, and made the shift. Um, and I started, you know, uh, looking at, and talking to people and putting together products, working on a business plan, all the stuff that I was learning and figuring out how to do. But the first piece of work I did that became sustaining over a period of time happened because of a relationship. Where I'd just given and, and given my time and helped out with n- no thought of, of recompense, just that I wanted to work with these amazing smart people. One of those amazing smart people had an opportunity and said to the client, you need Michael Leckie. Here's his number. Get him in because otherwise we're not going to succeed. And she threw that out there. And it was a great piece of work that, you know, fell into my lap and gave me a little bit of cushion then to, you know, do other things. But, you know, I'd like to say that there was a really good set way of doing it. But the only only set way of doing it, I think, is deciding to do it, is is committing to do it. And that's the scariest part. You know, there are no guarantees But you can't live in two worlds at once. You can do a little preparation while you're in this world easily. I mean, I did a lot of preparation towards writing the book and building intellectual property and learning what I was good at. But when you finally decide to go, you know, you need to commit to it at whatever level it is, whether it's 10 percent of your time or 110 percent of your time. You just have to decide. Uh, and and it is, it is not easy. Uh, I, I'm always reminded of a a, a corny 80s movie um, called Skin Deep with, with John Ritter. And I remember he's sitting talking to his therapist and the therapist, and he's got all sorts of problems. He's, you know, womanizing and destroying his relationships. And his therapist says, you know, when I tell my patients who are alcoholics, I say, first stop drinking. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, what does that mean? He goes, we'll talk next week. No, no, no. What does that mean? We'll talk next week. But I think what that means is it's that easy and it's that hard. It's incredibly hard just to stop drinking, but that's the only thing that you can really do in that case. And so, you know, for me, sometimes I just have to think, what is the just stop drinking choice here and then make that choice? Not knowing how it's going to turn out, not knowing if I'm going to stick to it, not knowing I'm going to make it work. And quite frankly, the first time I kind of made the decision, I said, maybe I should, you know, cut back on the addiction to a corporate life a little bit, but I didn't actually say I'm done. I'm there. I've hit kind of, if you will, rock bottom in the sense Mm -hmm. with the life that I had, which brought me many good things to move into the new life that I wanted. Is that helpful?
0: Yes, it is very helpful. You know, keep your, keep nurturing your relationships and, uh, don't underestimate anyone. And for me, for instance, I remember being in my late 20s. I was uh, basically nurturing and kind of coaching on my own terms a lot of these kids who are just fresh out of college. Now, fast forward 10 years later, they're now in mid-management situations. A lot of them have, have reached out to me. It's so hard to imagine that they're in their 30s and and have done a lot for me. So we have our first question uh, come up from Don, uh, uh, Don Africa production and uh, interesting. So Michael, now you have a company. What kind of culture exists in your organization and how did you establish that? What's your culture at com. Well, well, you know,
1: it's a small organization and it's all people that um, are partners, you know, <clears throat> like you, Um and other just kind of, you know, partners and friends. But I guess the culture in the organization is is uh, one of, you know, generosity and, and curiosity and, um, you know, possibility. And, and that fits real well, <clears throat> excuse me, with my personality. But it's led me to people who are like that. And so if I think about my organization, I'm going to use the term loosely. Like one person in my organization is my friend Bob Mesta. And Bob, Bob a genius. Bob is Bob is a a, a a a madman genius. He created Jobs to Be Done theory with Clayton Christensen. Um, he has, you know, innovated on thousands of products. And you you get in your car and you want to know, hey, which side is the gas tank on? Oh, there's that little arrow next to the gas gauge. That's Bob. He he created that years ago. Now, Bob was also a person that was told when he was young because of severe dyslexia that he would, you know, never uh, amount to anything. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, probably when he was a kid that, you know, uh, they uh, officially used, you know, the R word to describe him. And yet, you know, he's a brilliant man who lectures at Northwestern Harvard and MIT and is in- incredibly successful. Bob is a part of my organization and culture because we share a love of possibility, of of openness. Of, uh, of, 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 of challenge, of curiosity, and so we interact on things. And while you know we're not meeting like an organization, he reaches out about a project he's on that he knows I want to be a part of, and vice versa, when we connect with each other. Or my friend Michael Bungay Stanier, I worked with over the years, and I learned you know so much from him as well. So I, I find that that um, I've created a, a culture that that really fits me and what I love and who I want to be in the world. And that draws me to and draws in people into that organization, whether formal or informal, that share that. So that's the kind of organization. And I think I established it by going ahead and being the person that I want, being the kind of person I want to be working with, being that first without regard for whether or not it was going to come back to me that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I have had people reach out and I've given and it's been helpful and i've not heard back from them since. they've done their own thing and i don't regret that at all and i've had people that have reached out and i have given and we've stayed in touch and i've still continued to give and help them and i've never gotten anything for it and i have people that i've connected with and given it a little bit and then they've turned around out of the blue given to me something i never could have anticipated so you know it's not a it's not a, a zero sum game it's not one for one it's not quid pro quo it's just a matter of you know as Dolly Parton said, you know, figure out who you are and then, you know, do it on purpose. That's kind of what I've tried to do.
0: Yeah, I I think it, it's very, very true um, in that regards that I learned a lot from you. And the same thing is how I treat people, no matter where they are in this world, their background, uh, they choose to work with me uh, at every level, whether it's just a single episode, going live on my podcast or working with me on a regular basis. I want to give them full respect and Mm. I work with a lot of young people too. And I tell them there's so much I want to learn from them. So Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that. And there are a lot of people we want to Mm -hmm. thank. We feel thankful for, for, you know, the launch of your book, but there is a second question. Wonder uh, if you want to acknowledge that quickly as well. Sure. Yeah. How do you market your business? You're again, like solo entrepreneur who uh, collaborates with a lot of big thinkers um, what are some of the tactics have been most successful? I, I'm smiling because I should know the answer to this as well, because I'm helping you market your business yeah. uh, to a certain degree.
1: FazeWorld.com, <laughs> that's the answer. Um, <laughs> there you go. Easy commercial. No, because you've been a huge part of that. Um, and the parts that, so what, what how I market my business is two ways. In the ways I know how, and the ways I don't know how. In the ways I don't know how, Faye and her team do that you know, the social media, um, you know, uh, products, um, all the things that the, all the magic course, that she works yeah. and all the ideas that she has that she brings to the table with, with her team. The other ones, the ways I know how, which is by conversation and, and personal connection. And so, you know, when it comes to things that are mass, like those of you who are watching, uh, I, I don't know you personally. So this is a way through this medium to connect with you. The people I do know personally those ones I connect with individually. And, you know, there are more people that, you know, may be interested in what I do or may benefit from what I do. And so it's, you know, very, I guess, you know, targeted and and focused. Um, And other ways I do it is just by, you know, learning how to do it. You know, writing the book certainly is a way to market myself. Now the primary purpose of the book, very honestly, is I want it to have an impact on the world, but also, it's the kind of thing that, you know, puts my name out there. It's a, it's a, it's a calling card. It bestows legitimacy on me. And so I do things like that. And, you know, I just, uh, the tactics that have been most successful, this may be an annoying answer, are the ones that have worked. And I've tried a lot of things. I just keep trying things, seeing what works, putting a little in here, putting a little in there. One of the reasons I love working with you, Faye, is that, you know, you're a great experimenter. It's like, let's try this. Let's try that. Let's talk about this. Let's do that. This one worked. This one doesn't. Great. And I loved I used to work with some folks. I think it was an Amgen. And they would say they would celebrate every time a clinical trial would end in failure. Because it's like, yes, one more path not to pursue. We're getting closer to the real path. And that's sort of the way I think of, you know, marketing myself and the tactics around it.
0: Mm, I want to, that's great. I want to add to that as well for Don Africa um, uh, production, which is, I think for... Uh, Michael, coming from this background and with his experience, a few things that we did uh, since the beginning of the year, which includes uh, these virtual hangouts because of the pandemic, and the fact that it 's just so much easier to reach out to other people because you know Michael, you have connections worldwide, and there you know even there isn't even if there isn 't a pandemic it 's unrealistic to gather everybody to kind of celebrate your book and and tell everyone about everything you're doing. So we started consistently launching these virtual gatherings using house bays with a combination of Zoom. We have one this Thursday uh, on the 29th, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, I did include a in the comment of how to actually sign up for that. So that's AMA. You can have follow up. If you have more questions, I always do. Every time I watch a live stream, there are more questions. So you can ask Michael then on Thursday. But we've been doing that that consistently, not just for the month of launch or two days after launch uh, and we were able to meet people from uh, really around the world uh, so virtual events have been very helpful as well as uh, I love the course that Michael put together, which we you know it's a it's basically a series of videos but Michael put together these really interesting questions, which leaders and, you know, people from any part of the organization can study together, learning and and then, you know, answering via survey and then really reaching out to Michael directly. I think it's a very human experience that made... The launch, kind of one of a kind, and really helpful for people who engage. As opposed to, oh, let's put together a gamified plan and have ten thousand people enter, you know, into the email list, and you know, ninety-nine percent of them remain inactive. For people who don't know, well, Michael currently uses ConvertKit, and we can look at the engagement. Um, it is a smaller list, but the engagement is nearly fifty percent. You know, five zero. That is huge. So I would. Um, highly recommend that. Um, so, yeah. So with that said, we're just a few minutes over. Michael, I want to invite you to maybe let us know, you know, your mentors, people that you admire, people who inspired you, helped you throughout the book process, because I want to give them a, a quick spotlight as well.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mentioned my friend Michael Bungay-Stanier um, and uh, Mark Bowden as well. We've been you know, the two uh, Toronto boys there. We've been partners in crime for years and they've been very generous. Um, you, you dig back farther. Um, uh, Chris Worley, my uh, graduate uh, uh, thesis advisor who I still work with and am friends with. And um, the the great um, Edgar Schein, who I think has influenced my thinking more than anyone I can think of and who's, um, you know, actual uh, taking the time to read the book and and endorsing it for me uh, was an an incredibly rewarding and humbling experience. That's really all I needed. You know, the book was a success for me if nobody buys a copy because um, uh, because Ed thought it had value. Uh, but there, there are so many people that I work with, you know, day to day. And um, what's nice, a lot of people who endorse the book, people like, you know, uh, Sue Mormon, who has been so generous and wonderful to me, and just a brilliant thinker who took time to engage and and build a friendship. Uh, I I could I could go on uh, and on and on with people in my lives, but I, I suppose that the 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 number one person who has, you know, I would want to thank would again be uh, my wife, because, you know. If I'm on my own, I can make all these choices and take all these risks. But with a family, we have to do that together. And I have I have watched relationships that are very, very different. And it scares her what I decide to do sometimes. But, you know, her belief in me has given me a belief in me that I probably wouldn't have had without. I probably would have kind of crumbled and decided I can't do this. Um, so having someone that, you know, you're loving as your best friend, but who also really, really believes in you that's that's been the most probably amazing relationship of my life it's given me the ability um, to do what i've done which is why i tried to you know tried to capture a fraction of what i feel about her in the uh, acknowledgements in the book
0: This is so lovely. Uh, Molly has been great. Uh, I got to meet her briefly on Zoom as well. And uh, just immediately, she's been such a huge supporter uh, because we have to, you know, I have to ask Molly to take videos of you you during the pandemic and we put them on your YouTube channel and she's done a great job. Uh, You know, there's so many partners who, who would just be, you know, not be interested or uh, you're not trying to help. And she's been so consistently there and to be so supportive. So thank you, Molly. And I will conclude the live stream today, but I really urge people to check out this book and, you know, uh, tell your, your friends, family, colleague about it, because it does change you and your organization for good. Um, And, you know, it's a, It's a lot of effort that Michael put in there so that I don't have to, so I can just consume the content and apply it accordingly. Um, Any, anything else, Michael, before we conclude, any last words for our audience?
1: Yeah, I think, because maybe when we were talking about Molly, maybe think of it. And then one of the things that she's done that doesn't have to be just your spouse doing it for you, but one of the generous gifts she's given me is listening to me. And most of the things that made their way into print, make their way into products, make their way into, uh, you know, uh, Fortune 50 boardrooms or into, you know, uh, aud- auditoriums filled with thousands of people started in a conversation as I talked out loud with my wife. And she has listened to me blather on more than anybody. As soon as I'll realize I've been talking to Blue Streak for like 45 minutes, I look at her, I say, I'm sorry. She goes, no. It's, it's interesting to me. I like to know what's going on in your life and she's allowed me that ability to speak out loud. So you know, find those people that you need that, that will give you the gifts you need. One of the gifts I need is someone who can let me talk out loud, which is really interesting because the majority of my most powerful work comes working with people who don't get that space to talk and think out loud because they're so pressured by what's going on in their job. And when I pull them into that space, they're able to do things they weren't able to do, not because I tell them how, not because I show them the magical way, but because I just create that space and pull them into it. You know, she's allowed that space for me. And uh, so I, I think that, you know, if you find the people that can help you do what you need to give to others, it can be really a kind of a magical cycle there.
0: Mm. Absolutely agree. And I have so many people to thank for after this live stream. I feel like I should email them and let them know. And yes, thank the people who support you and love you on a regular basis. And uh, believe it or not, I did listen to uh, Coldplay's new release to celebrate today. And one quote, it's so funny. Some, it's a band I listened to when I was like 19. It's been many years. So uh, there's one, and their lyrics tend to be very simple. There's one thing uh, I remember from an hour ago was in the end, it's the love you give is what matters, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think you've been tried. you've been so helpful to so many people without expecting anything in return. And the people you influence, maybe you'll never hear from, uh, are actually there thinking of you. So please know that. And um, I hope um, some of you consider buying this book. If not, go to Michaelike.com. There's so much to learn about his work. So much of the resources and books and blog posts and courses are completely free. All right. So consider doing And we'll doing build that. more,
1: right? What is it? But- and we'll continue to build more.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. There's so much we can build together. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much. Lovely to have you, Michael. I'll take us offline now. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. This episode of the Face World podcast is brought to you by Face World LLC, our marketing service agency created for independent creators and businesses. We offer website development, video production, marketing mentorship, to people who want to tell better stories, level up, and create a profitable brand. FaceWorld Podcast team our chief editor and producer Herman Ceballos, Associate Producer Adam Leffert, social media and content manager Rose de Leon, transcript editor Alina Ahmidova, and lastly myself, the creator and host of FaceWorld. Thank you so much for listening.